RPN, the Roddenberry Podcast Network. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Episode 304, Profit and Loss. Welcome in the Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Ken Ray. And I'm John Champion. Each week on Mission Log, we watch an episode of Star Trek, taking it apart for morals and meanings, ideas and ideals, and seeing whether it all stands the test of time. This week, we go back in time to when Ferengi were real men, Cardassians were real dames, and around every corner, somebody working an angle. Profit and Loss, starring Quark as Humphrey Bogart, Natima as Ingrid Bergman, and other characters as other people from Casablanca. I've got trivia coming up in a bit, but first... But first, I'm going to let you know how to get in touch with us. Mission Log Pod is the address to find us on Facebook, Skype, and Twitter. If you'd like to leave us a voicemail, we would love to hear your voice. 323-522-5641 is the phone number to call. 323-522-5641. Our email address is missionlog at roddenberry.com. Our show website, including discovered documents, is at missionlogpodcast.com. And please do remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. Um, uh, tip of the hat, uh, Doff of the Old Chapeau to some old-timey type movies and stuff, John, I'm assuming. Around that, there's got to be a bit of trivia. You might think so, so let's get to it, shall we? Profit and Loss was written by Flip Kobler and Cindy Marcus. Brand new names to the show this week. Flip and Cindy are a husband and wife creative team. This episode was their first professional sale in Hollywood. Now, it is their only Star Trek credit, but it launched a very interesting career for them both. They actually spent a good portion of the 90s and 2000s writing sequels to Disney blockbusters like Beauty and the Beast, Lion King, Pocahontas, and Hunchback of Notre Dame. They were even in development for an animated movie based on Pirates of the Caribbean before it was decided that a live-action film would be made instead. Okay, okay, the working title here for this episode was... Here's looking at you. Please hold that thought. Today's episode was directed by Robert Weimer. Not a new name for us since he was around a lot during TNG. But this is Bob's only DS9 credit. You may remember he directed some standout episodes of TNG, though, like Who Watches the Watchers, Parallels, and... Schisms! Schisms! Hey, Ken, let's take ourselves and everybody along with us back to January 17th, 1994, at about 4.30 a.m. Well, I was nowhere near L.A. at the time. I don't believe you were either. Mm -mm. But that is the day of the Northridge earthquake, a very large earthquake, very close to Los Angeles. And at 4.30 in the morning, well, you had Armin Shimmerman, you had Mary Crosby, You had Michael Westmore. You had people on Michael Westmore's team. You had all these people getting things started at Paramount at the DS9 set. Well, that was a big earthquake, and it not only knocked out power and phone lines all over the place, it scared the heck out of people, and those actors, partly into their makeup, dashed out of the studio to drive back home to see if everybody was okay. So as you can imagine, here you have actors in various stages of uh, very bizarre makeup <laughs> out in the wild in L.A. Uh, fortunately, they were all all right. But uh, that was a major event that happened right during the production of this show, and actually it delayed production by two days. Now, in this episode, we have reference to a book called I, the Jury, It was written by Mickey Spillane and released in 1947. It was Spillane's first novel and the introduction of his detective character, Mike Hammer. There was a movie made in 1953, then another in 1982, that one starring Armand Asante. Hey, and we have a reference here to the Sumerian Sunset, a drink we first met a couple of years before on TNG. I still say it looks like Tang, once the special effects have worn off. Now, let's talk about guest stars. 
We say welcome back to Andrew Robinson as Garrick. Then we have Edward Wiley playing Gull Turan. He started his career in the film Chariots of Fire in 1981 and worked consistently appearing in the films Highlander and The Hunger, as well as TV shows like Max Headroom and Hunter. We saw him in his one other Trek appearance as Vach in the TNG episode The Mind's Eye. He passed away in 1995 at the age of 40. The two Cardassian students we meet here, Hoag and Raquelin, are played respectively by Michael Riley Burke and Heidi Swedberg. Michael, we have seen before, he was Goval in the TNG episode Descent Part 2, and we will see him again in a short recurring role on Enterprise. Among his many TV and film roles, his biggest is likely the title role in the 2002 film Bundy about Ted Bundy. Heidi Swedberg has a number of excellent credits, TV and film. You may have seen her in Galaxy Quest or in Hot Shots, but TV audiences will very likely know her as George's ill-fated girlfriend slash fiance Susan in Seinfeld. And finally, Mary Crosby plays Natima Lang. That last name should be familiar. She is the daughter of Bing Crosby, which makes her the aunt of TNG star Denise Crosby. She's had just tons of TV roles over her career and some feature film roles, too, like in Ice Pirates, that's for you, Barry, and The Legend of Zorro. In TV terms, though, she is probably best known for playing Kristen Shepard in Dallas. Spoiler alert from the 1980 CBS Fall TV lineup, She's the one who shot J.R. Ewing on Dallas. That was the highest-rated TV episode in history until just a few years later when it was eclipsed by the series finale of M.A.S.H. Feature prominently in this episode, Garrick, Quark, Odo, and Funky Cold Natima. Prologue. Our Cardassian ship is coming in hot. Out of control, damage, no communications. The crew at DS9 use a tractor beam to pull it in. And on board, they find three people. Natima Lang and her students, Raquelin and Hoag. Natima says they were hurt by meteors, but O'Brien might be able to get things up and running again. The sooner the better. Three Cardassians hanging out on Bajoran space station may not be comfortable, but Commander Sisko assures them they'll be okay if they hang out at the promenade while repairs take place. In Quarks, Dr. Bashir and Garrick are going around in conversation about loyalty to family versus loyalty to the state, and whether or not Garrick is a spy or an outcast or both. Odo comes in for his usual ruffling of Quark, this time checking up on a rumor that Quark has a cloaking device, which he flatly denies. In walks Natima and her students, which causes Quark to race around from behind the bar and say hello to this woman who he clearly is excited about seeing. She slaps him across the face, saying she told him to never speak to her again. And Quark tells Odo it's the happiest day of his life. Act 1. Natima and her students are trying to get out of there, but Quark insists that they come to the bar and have a drink on him. While pouring... Quark tells Odo that Natima worked on the station years ago, and she was the love of his life. He brings her a drink, a Sumerian sunset, which she insists she doesn't drink anymore because they remind her of him. As Quark tries to catch up with her, Bashir and Garrick's lunch has ended, but when Garrick spots the new Cardassian on board, he pauses and catches his breath. She seems rattled, and her students are in a near panic. They've got to leave the station right away. O'Brien has been working on their damaged vessel, and he reports that it's going to take some more time. You see, those meteor strikes weren't meteors. The ship was attacked by Cardassian weapons. Natima cops to it. Yeah, she lied about the meteors. This is all due to an internal political issue on Cardassia. They don't like to talk about it with outsiders, but she needs to leave right away with her students. If they die, so too might the future of Cardassia. Act 2. The political debate comes down to this. Cardassia's government and military are one and the same. Natima and her students are activists who oppose this, and therefore they're wanted. 
Cisco says he'll protect them as best he can, assigning quarters for them until the ship repairs are completed. And as for being spotted by Garrick, well, we're not sure yet what that means. Until Quark stops by the tailor shop. He's looking for a dress for Natima. But really, he's not. The two shop owners talk about fashion, but really they don't. Garrick makes it clear that Natima's students are on the wrong side of the political debate, and he'd hate to see something happen to Quark's friend if they should fall out of fashion. Quark tries to counter, but he's really got no recourse. With this concern on his mind, Quark goes directly to Natima, offering help, if only she'd stay with him. Even if she leaves, he says he'll follow her wherever she goes. It's not like that, though. Years ago, they fell in love under very different circumstances. She was working for the Cardassian Communications Service. Quark was illegally selling food to Bajorans. He stole money by using her access codes to the Cardassian government. Now, a long time has passed. She's a member of the Cardassian underground, and if he goes with her, he would probably be killed. Quark says he doesn't care. He'll wait, but that wait could be for a very long time. With repairs on Atima's ship nearing completion, unexpected visitors arrive. It's a Cardassian warship taking up an aggressive posture toward DS9. Then who should show up at Ops but plain, simple Garrick, saying to Sisko that they need to talk? Act 3. Garrick explains it this way. Those students? Not really students, according to the Central Command. More like terrorists in their eyes. The Cardassian government would like them handed over, please, and thank you very much. Sisko disagrees, though. They haven't committed any crimes on DS9. They will be safe here, and he will not hand them over. In fact, if the Cardassians attempt to use force, he will respond in kind. Plain, simple Garrick, merely the messenger in this case, agrees to relay that message back to the Cardassians. Hogue and Raquelin are at Quark's bar, and Quark has got a deal for them— they need to get off the station under the eyes of the Cardassian military. Seems like the only way they could do that is with some sort of cloaking device. And guess who happens to have lied to Odo about having just such a thing? Yeah, well, Quark has it. It won't work for very long, about 15 minutes, but that's just long enough. And what do they owe him in return? Simple. Convince Natima to stay behind. They say she won't do it, but they'll do what they can to try to convince her. An hour later, in comes Quark to Natima's quarters. He's got the cloaking device with him. Hogue and Raquelin are at the ship. Only Natima says she's not staying. Their love affair ended long ago. Her loyalty is to her cause, and now she really needs that cloaking device. He's not willing to give it up unless she stays behind, at which point Natima points a phaser at his chest, Quark says she'll have to shoot if she expects to keep the cloak, and she does. Act 4. Fortunately, that weapon was on a very low setting, but still, Quark is like, you shot me! And she wants to know if he'll be okay, and he will, but still, you shot me! She's so apologetic. She's never fired a phaser before, and she didn't really mean to do it, but you shot me! Quark will feel better if she rubs the wound. Okay. That becomes an embrace. Then that becomes a kiss. Yeah, she still has some feelings for Quark. She's dedicated to her cause, but it's in good hands with Kellen and Hogue. She says, after all, that she'll stay. This sweet reunion is interrupted by Odo, who is very sorry to inform Natima that he's there to arrest her. So off to the security office they go, and she's tossed in a cell with Raquel and Hogue. Sisko drops by to explain. It wasn't his call, but rather the Bajoran provisional government. The three Cardassian dissidents are to be turned over to the Cardassian government in exchange for six Bajoran prisoners. Even with their pleas to let Natima go, Sisko says he's at the mercy of the Bajorans, though he disagrees with their decision. Garrick, meanwhile, is visited by an old friend, Toran. 
Now he's Gull Torin, and he's there to make Garrick an offer that is very hard to refuse. See to it that none of those Cardassians leave DS9 alive. But Garrick says he's the one who suggested the prisoner exchange. Killing them would only turn them into martyrs. So be it. He'll do the deed if he expects to end his exile and see Cardassia again. Act 5. Quark drops by Odo's office to beg, literally, for the lives of Natima and the others. Sure, he starts with the appeal to Cardassian freedom, to his own profit motive, but he lands on his feelings for Natima. It's not working. Quark throws in the ultimate bargaining chip. He'll toss in information on every underhanded thing that Rom has done. Still not working. Finally, Quark takes to his knees to get Odo on his side. And Odo agrees. But not for Quark. He does it because Odo sees it as a matter of justice, not as a favor for the bar owner. Springing the three from their cell, Quark leads him to their ship and says he's put the cloaking device in their engine core. All is good to go. Except at the airlock, who should be waiting with a weapon drawn? Plain, simple, Garrick. The Cardassian Central Command has ordered Garrick to execute the three dissidents, and he's there to do it, even if it means taking Quark along with them. Taking Quark's phaser from his hands, he says it's against his better judgment, even as Natima says he knows the military is losing control of what will eventually be a free and democratic Cardassia. Overhearing this is Gull Turan, who just happened to be watching to make sure Garrick carried out his orders. He taunts Garrick a bit, saying the time on DS9 has made him soft, and no matter what, his reputation on Cardassia will never be restored. As Toran aims his weapon at Raquelin, a flash of energy discharges from the other phaser Garrick had lifted from Quark, Gull Toran is vaporized, and Garrick quips that some people should never have been promoted. Now with the coast clear, time for the dissidents to board their ship. First Raquelin and Hogue, then Natima says she has to leave Quark. For real. Maybe she'll see him again someday, maybe when Cardassia is free, but where she is going, he can't follow. It doesn't take much to see that the problems of three little people don't amount to a hill of beans in this crazy world. She leaves, and that leaves Quark and Garrick. Quark says he let her go because he loves her, and Garrick says he shot Toran because he loves Cardassia. This could be the start of a beautiful friendship. The end. I have a very important question. Shoot. What's the 223rd rule of acquisition? <laughs> okay, do you really want to know? Do you really know? I really do know. I have the book. You have the book? I have the book. I didn't realize you had the book. I knew you knew there was a book. I didn't yeah, know you yeah. had it. I, I of have course I want to know. What is uh, it? By, by Quark, as told to Iris Stephen Bear. Right. And, and it's never trust a man who doesn't make time for Umox. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That's good enough. Yeah, not bad, right? Yeah, it's not bad. I like, uh, I like Quark in this episode a lot. I, I do too. He's wonderful. Yeah, I, I, I was a huge fan of the uh, the first exchange that he had with Odo at the very beginning. Odo, uh, <laughs> I heard an interesting rumor today, and Quark says, only one? I started at least 12. <laughs> I like that. It's a good time. That is a great line. And yeah, I, uh, obviously, we'll talk a lot about Quark in this show, but uh, I, I feel like we're, we're sort of now back to the lovable Quark, the lovable rascal Quark who has redeeming qualities, as opposed to the uh, near murderous Quark who uh, we question from week to week. Well, just ask, you know, Kira. She'll be happy mm -hmm. to remind you of every bad thing that Quark has ever done ever. So, yeah. so if, you start yeah. to, if you start to be lulled into a sense of um, comfort let's say, or security, mm -hmm. where Quark is concerned, just stop by Kira's uh, place. She's always entertaining. 
and say, uh, hey, by the way, uh, I'm trying to remember, do I like Quark or do I not? And she'll, uh, she'll be happy to remind you. <laughs> she'll let you know. So Natima is worried right from the beginning, and, and rightfully so, about Cardassians wandering around DS9, because there, there aren't any. They don't know about Garrick yet. Uh, but Cisco says they, they should be fine as long as they stay on the promenade, which is right out in public on the busiest part of the station, you know, precisely where that Cardassian bookkeeper got stabbed about a year ago. Yeah, yeah, that should be good. Well, I mean, okay, so there was the Cardassian bookkeeper, but otherwise, absolutely nothing has happened on the promenade. I yeah. mean, sure, that zealot tried to kill Vedic Barail. But right. otherwise, the promenade's just a perfectly safe place, you know, with, as you say, everybody passing through. Yeah, and they and they blew up a school there. Uh, well, that so, was the same episode. That doesn't count. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but other than that, you're good. You're yeah, good. that should, should be fine. Just, you know... I mean, honestly, there are so many, you know, uh, cracks and crevices and places they could go to DS9. They actually should stay where as many people can see them as possible. Because while murder has been attempted in front of everybody on the promenade, you got to figure, I mean, again, only 300 people, however many square feet of DS9, there have to be bodies all over that place. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's just a big it's a, cleanup Oh, it's a dark, it's a, it's a seedy, it's questionable. There's so much about Deep Space Nine to love. Right. Right. Um, I, so uh, back to the Quark thing. The, the Quark and Garrick dialogue in a Quark shop is just absolutely crackling. I, I have mm -hmm. to wonder, I, I don't know if that is all attributed to the writers who got the, the teleplay and story credit here. Obviously, shows go through kind of all the steps of the, the producers and the rest of the writing staff to kind of clean it up. But, uh, man, that is just some fantastic dialogue. And the Cork-Natima dialogue is good, too. We do get into a little creepy territory of Cork saying he will follow her around until she agrees to take him back. But, oh. but regardless. Yeah. Uh, come on. It's the 40s. Please. Oh, sure. You mean the, you mean the 2340s. I mean the 1940s. Uh -huh. You know that, when dames yes. were Cardassians and men were <laughs> Ferengi or whatever I said at the beginning of the show. Yeah. Um, yeah. So this week, and you know, I'm, yes, I understand what you're saying. If they weren't doing straight up homage to a time, yeah. then I would, I mean, I would, I would be with you. And yes, we can actually go back to whether or not they should have been that way in the 40s. But where this thing in the 1990s is very much paying homage to this thing in the 1940s, it's kind of hard for me to fault it on that. We can yeah. fault the 40s, but where they're just, you know, copying the, well, whatever. You get the no, idea. Of course, of course. Um, I got to say, uh, there was a there was a bit of gumbification from Quark this week. Not only the he's back to the rapscallion as opposed to the guy who'll kill you. Mm. Uh, this week, Quark is very successful. Yes. He tells yes. Natima, last week he was stuck in a backwater. Mm. And, and I really do have to wonder... If Starfleet Medical has ever looked in the prevalence of gumbification in the Alpha Quadrant, because it's starting to be serious. It is. It is. Although, I, you know, maybe he's just saying that to impress Natima. Maybe, you know, he might use these phrases like, oh, I'm stuck in a backwater when he's trying to make a case for woe is he. Right. But then he was trying to make a case for Natima to stay. Hey, sticking around. So Quark, Quark plays fast and loose with, with whatever benefits him. So he's um, trying to make himself look better for Natima, or was he just trying to make Arjun feel worse about himself? All of the above. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, oh, God. And what a wonderful moment of Quark checking to see if Odo is there in the bar listening in on his conversation. He he smacks the table, he puts his finger in the drink, he kind of swipes at the chair, you know. Yeah, that was pretty cool. Although I was thinking what would be really funny is if we just see him doing that from now on. Like, <laughs> yes. everywhere he goes, he's, yes. like, hitting the walls on Deep Space Nine and, like, you yes. know, kicking the carpet and, and all kinds of things. Just you know, Eventually he goes insane. I think yeah. that's actually how yeah. that plays out. But it would be fun <laughs> to watch. Yes, yes, it would be. Hey, I'm thinking of a new thing here. We, I, I have lost count of exactly how many episodes of Star Trek. Well, I guess it's 304 that we've talked about. It's the 304th episode of Star Trek that we have talked about. Well, actually, it's been more than that because we have two-parters and things. Plus, we have the movies. Plus, we actually did two episodes of the cartoons at each yeah. time. So somewhere so I, in the I'd neighborhood. I'd say it's at least 306. 
Okay, somewhere in the neighborhood there. But I, I'm going to say at this point, you know, not quite halfway into our run of the original uh, series and then those first spinoffs. Look, mm-hmm. cloaking devices are everywhere in Star Trek. And after a hundred years worth of replicators everywhere, you just think that it wouldn't be that big of a deal anymore. It would just be a reality of life that you'd have to look out for. I mean, Quark's got one, the Romulans had one, that was a hundred years ago. They just keep getting replicated, they keep getting passed around. At this point, everybody has got a, a, a cloaking device. Well, first of all, you don't know that cloaking devices are everywhere. That's what makes them cloaking devices, right? Well, yeah, but remember, you got a machine that can make anything. Well, I understand you have a machine that can make anything, but uh, apparently there is still a bit of a social contract in the Alpha Quadrant, right? Mm Because you're right, everybody ought to have one, except there are rules that say everybody can't have one. And so when you occasionally find out about one... I mean, it's like it, it's sort of like how we all have guns in the States. I mean, we don't all have guns, but we could all have guns. Mm-hmm. And as horrible as gun violence is, and it is terrible, it could be a lot worse. And I'm not saying so it's fine. I'm saying there's there's maybe some sort of social contract that is keeping everybody from having a uh, from having a cloaking device or maybe as you posit, everyone does have a cloaking device and you can't you really can't go five feet mm-hmm. without hitting somebody in space because Everybody has a cloaking device. Well, that's the funny thing about a cloaking device is you, you can say that it's illegal. Hey, if we catch you with a cloaking device, mm-hmm. that, that, that's a problem. And by cloaking device, we mean the thing that makes you invisible so we can't find you. <laughs> right. Yes. <laughs> right. Although, do I have something in my eye or are the stars like all warbly right there? I don't know what's going on. <laughs> right. Right. Hey, uh, about that Mickey Spillane book. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I, the jury Odo says that, uh, chief O'Brien loaned it to me. Mm-hmm. I have a lot of questions about how you loaned a digital file of a 400 year old book. Well, that's, that's all that pad does. Oh, oh, okay. So he just had the Mickey Spillane, I, the jury pad, right? That's it. Can't replicate another. Can't add more files to it. That yeah. that's an amazing thing, right? They thought of so much in mm-hmm. Star Trek in the in the nineties, right? Yeah. Or you going back to the sixties, even when they were like uh, in the court martial, I think it was. And like, so somebody starts a tape recorder, and Gene was like, "They're not going to have a tape recorder. Don't be stupid. What are they going to have? I don't know, but it'll be spacey. So just yeah. make it make it something spacey, right? So there's a yeah. little like you know a disc. It turns out he invented the disc without even re- meaning to. It just looked amazing. futuristic. So, I mean, yes, they could figure, oh, well, okay, digital information will be on a pad, but they couldn't quite make that leap to, oh, and you'll just be able to get all of it. Like, you know, right. the complete works of everybody who ever wrote ever you know, on a pad, which right. only takes up about half of, you know, the storage space. So the rest of it you got for Tetris. <laughs> well, and I wondered if Odo then sends that file. Well, in this case, the whole pad. But let's right. just say it is a digital file. Does he send that digital file back? Oops. Okay. Now we got three copies because we had we had the original, and then it gets sent over, and then it gets sent over again. What are we going to do with all these digital copies? See, we don't even know what publishing rights are like though in the twenty third, twenty fourth century, whichever That's, century we're in at this point. Because yeah. like, because your local library has digital copies of books that you can check out, but they only have so many of them. And that to me is absolutely ludicrous, but it's also true. And I understand why it's because if everybody could do that, then nobody would buy a book and then pretty soon nobody can afford to publish. I get that, but it is absolutely insane that you can go on a waiting list at your local library for a digital file, which you ought Mm -hmm. to be able to have just like at the drop of a hat, except if you want it for free, you're going to have to stand in line because there are only 10 of them. Even though there, there really <laughs> could be easily many, many more than that. Right. Uh, another interesting technology thing here. DS9, for a place that has a no weapons policy, <laughs> there is a lot of phaser use in this episode. And I'm going to suggest maybe they need that alarm that they had on the Enterprise way back in 2293. Uh, they had that one installed in the kitchen. So if you uh, shot a pot of mashed potatoes, then uh, then you get an alarm. Wait a minute. I No, I figured it out. That That is not a phaser alarm. That is a mashed potato alarm. That is that is the alarm that goes off when somebody is messing with the mashed potatoes. And I, I, now I get it. Now I get the purpose of that alarm. Or they have all of their cookware tagged. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Wait a minute. There's a pot missing. Yeah. <laughs> 
if your friend, or someone you love, takes contrary positions at the drop of a hat. He or she may not be fickle. They may be suffering, from gumbification. But there is hope, through the Alpha Quadrant Gumbification Prevention Society. Stay tuned, to find out how you can help. So what do you make of uh, Odo's sudden turn at the end, letting the Cardassians go for justice? Well, you know, Odo's still a little bit of uh, a little bit of a mystery here, mystery mm-hmm. to himself personally. Um, we know that he is a law and order guy. He's a by the books guy. Mm-hmm. We also know that his relationship with uh, Quark, in the Facebook uh, terms of things, is complicated. <laughs> right. Um, so it, it's a little hard to believe that it is purely because of Quark's appeals. So I, I have to wonder if part of Odo's motivation has to do with what we have learned about Odo in the past uh, and, and his dealing with the Cardassians. He may have appreciated the efficiency of the Cardassian system, but I don't think he has great love for the Cardassians here. So when it's convenient for him, more convenient for him to go, oh, okay, well, there, there is a principle here that we can stand by. Uh, technically, they're not violating anything by being here on DS9, meaning the, the dissidents. Um, I can at least make a case in my head for getting them out of here and not being my problem. Um, Although, had the Cardassians been able to exert a lot of power, that might open up a whole thing where then more and more Cardassians show up at DS9 and say, okay, no, now seriously, where did those people go? And they're going to tear this place apart till we find out. Well, I mean, I I was trying to figure that out, actually, because like the the episode ends, everybody's like, okay, well, glad that's over. And it was like, wait a minute, Mm -hmm. how is it? Because they just killed a gull, right? Yeah. Uh, Garrick just killed a gull, and Odo let these three people escape. But then I'm like, oh, okay, well, that actually makes perfect sense. Somehow they overpowered Odo, or somehow they escaped. Then they went to the ship, and Gulteran found them, and so they shot him and got away. So so, yeah. so Odo's actually cleaning this whole thing, and Garrick's actually cleaning this whole thing. Neither of them are actually, actually clean, but they're both, you know, as far as the outside observers go, um, they're they're both cleaning the whole thing. It well, was, I like how Odo, you know, Odo stays behind. Yeah. I, I kept expecting there to be an Odo thing. Like when I first watched it and you've got Garrick holding a phaser and then you've got Toran holding a phaser. I kept expecting the deus ex machina of Odo to show up doing something, mm-hmm. form of a phaser, whatever. <laughs> um, but I'm glad he stayed behind because it gives the whole thing plausible deniability. Right for him, they should have. Uh, you know. They should have gotten O'Brien in on the deal, though, because he could hit him on you know whatever is passing for his head at that moment in a way that he won't oh, feel totally. it. Oh, totally. Yeah, and that <laughs> right. would have been good. I think that would have been. Yeah, a, that's a it's a little bit yeah. of an obscure callback, but you know, callback nonetheless. Yeah. I, it's. I mean, it's it's fine because the show had to go the way the show had to go. And here's the thing, mm-hmm. and you're gonna hear me be really forgiving of a lot that happens in this show because, as I said before, they are straight up doing old movie. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's not what Odo would do, but it's sort of like, you know, that musical episode of, of Buffy, the Vampire Slayer. They wouldn't sing normally, but it's a musical episode. So they're singing. So I don't yeah. I don't think that this is something that Odo would normally do, but it's something that Odo has to do in this episode. And it's it's fine with me um, in a more in a more straightforward and a more serious episode. I, I think I would have had a harder time with Odo just going, well. I'll do it for justice because, yeah, I don't know. I mean, he's never, yeah, that's, but, but, that's never been enough of an appeal to him, I don't think, except for uh, when Cliff DeYoung was on. I can't remember the name of the episode, but the one where, um, you know, with the daughter and, you know, what I'm talking about. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I also forget the name, but yeah, but see, here's the thing. I, I don't think that Odo is immune to that, though. Uh, Odo likes order. Mm hmm. Odo likes status quo, mm-hmm. but he also does have this somewhat finely tuned sense of justice. I, I think he, being who he is, always the outsider, no matter what, he doesn't have loyalty to the Cardassians. He doesn't have loyalty to the Bajorans in particular. He respects the structure 
of uh, the hierarchy of where he is, with Cisco being the boss at the station. Um, and I think he respects the difficulty of, uh, uh, of Cisco's decision here, because Cisco has made very clear he doesn't like this at all. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I, I have less of a hard time buying that Odo can be swayed by the moral principle or the, the justice principle at play here. And that's kind of what I started to do in my notes is from the beginning, I, I really liked that conversation. I wish there had been more of the conversation between Bashir and Garrick because they were getting at something interesting and, and picking apart. Well, here are big decisions that people make. But those decisions may be swayed at the moment by that feeling of loyalty. And and uh, Garrick is saying, look, no matter what, if you're a Cardassian, if you're a good Cardassian, then your loyalty is to the state, even if it means that this other general let his brother get executed. And uh, and Bashir is saying, oh, but that, that wouldn't have held up. It was circumstantial evidence. Garrick says, doesn't matter. The loyalty is to the state, no matter what. So... Quark is motivated by his loyalty to a person, no matter what. His loyalty is to Natima. He wants to make that happen, and he will bend every rule and try to make everything happen to uh, to get her back. Garrick clearly is motivi- motivated by loyalty to the state, but then by principle, uh, which was interesting to see that change. I don't know if I 100% buy it, but I, I still like the way it played out. And then I thought maybe just by being at odds with Turan, you know, if, if Turan had not shown up, I kind of asked myself, well, what would have happened then? Would Garrick have been cold-blooded enough to just end it for those three Cardassians? Because clearly Garrick has these complications in, in his feelings about Cardassia and the way things have been and the way things are. And does he want to go back? Can he go back? But Torin just kind of comes there and, and sort of twists the knife a little bit. So that's interesting. Cause I actually, cause I was going to uh, ask you some questions about Garak a bit later, uh, but okay. uh, he like, well, I mean, he, I don't know. He's he's been an enigmatic character to this point. And then when he mm-hmm. comes out in the first part of the episode and he's like, no, it's all about the state. It's all about the state. And yeah, of course, the general was right to have his brother killed because it's all about the state. Right. Yeah. And then he's you know still all about the state until this guy who's an agent of the state says, what did you really think you were going to get back in? You're not going to get back in. So Garrett kills him. And he says, well, I did it for love of Cardassia. Okay, well, that's not really the state anymore. I mean, there was a fantastic thing where, you know, Garrick actually said to uh, Cisco, uh, the return of Hogue and Raquelin is in the best interest of the Cardassian Empire. And Cisco says, you mean the Cardassian military? And Garrick says, is there a difference? I mean, he's bought Cardassia for the Cardassian hook, line, and sinker, right? Yeah. And, yeah. and yet, you know, then somebody is like, wow, what are you, an idiot? And he's like, wow, nobody's going to talk to me that way. And so he kills him. And he's like, well, I love Cardassia so much that, you know, screw the state. Except no, because you just said like your whole argument all this time, except for that one guy all of a sudden. I mean, he's like, I don't know, the same way. Well, hmm, I'm about to contradict myself. The same way that I'm willing to forgive whatever Odo does in this episode. I had a hard time with what happened with Garrick, honestly, because he is just Mm -hmm. mustache twirling bad guy until the very end of this episode. And what's been great about Garrick to this point is no, he's not. I mean, you haven't really known what he was. You haven't had a clear idea of, you know, who he was or what his motivations were. And and yeah. and today he was the you must pay the rent guy. <laughs> like oh man, it's, I don't know how I feel about him now. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it's a tough thing. I mean, fortunately, we've got uh, what five and a half more seasons to go of him. Four and a half. <laughs> Four and a half. Five and a half. Five and a half. Five yeah. and a half. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Um, but in this episode, I, I like the idea that we got more character detail about him. We we got uh, the, the stuff that's emerging. He is in exile. He He's tempted, at least, by seeing Cardassia again. Uh, there's at least the hint that being on DS9 is not by choice. Mm-hmm. And, and even if it is, it's kind of miserable. Um, 
or or at least it can be portrayed that way as sort of a, a way for him to be manipulated, seemingly so, by other Cardassians who might show up. See, do you think he cares at all about the state? Do you think he cares at all about Cardassia or is he just selfish and wants to go home? Well, it's a good question. I mean, we're we're led to believe it at the end, but maybe the belief is, uh, okay, if I do what I can to ensure a freer, more democratic Cardassia in the future, then the military structure, which I am now an outcast from, uh, I will have an easier time getting back. So may- maybe that is his core motivation, is Garrick wants to get back to uh, to Cardassia. Can we talk about um, the other situation as far as uh, the Cardassians, specifically with the Federation? Yeah. All right. Um, in 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 our world, in real life, the U.S. has dealt with adversaries or former adversaries. I'm sure this happens, you know, in every country around the world uh, to an extent. Mm-hmm. But the U.S. has dealt with adversaries or former adversaries to get, you know, prisoners or the remains of deceased prisoners back from those adversaries. So... You know, the fact that the Bajorans are willing to arrest Cardassians and trade Cardassians to Cardassia in exchange for, you know, living Bajoran prisoners is not that odd. Uh, mm-hmm. Where it got kind of murky for me is the Cardassians, as they're trading, are actually trying to make Cardassia the kind of place that wouldn't occupy Bajor just because they want it. You know, it's like, well, you got stuff and we need stuff, so we're moving in. I think I think um, Raquel and, and, and Hogue would not have been uh, those kind of Cardassians. But, you know, we want to get those Bajorans back. So uh, they're just Cardassians. Who cares? I mean, are they not yeah. even are they not even uh, concerning themselves with, first of all, the Cardassians that they're trading, what those Cardassians stand for? And second, should they even be you know uh, trading with Cardassians? And then uh, the, and then the other issue that I have is, is Starfleet and the Federation are like, yeah, no, you need to go ahead and make this deal because because. Well, it's out of the Federation's jurisdiction, isn't it? I mean, Cisco Cisco is a manager. Mm-hmm. He's not a he's not a, a political figure. He's not an ambassador. Mm-hmm. He's not. Uh, he's just there to make sure that Bajor sort of picks itself up and uh, and dusts itself off after the occupation. He's a station administrator, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. and Odo is chief of security. For the station, not and, not for Bajor. Well, Odo wears a Bajoran uniform. He doesn't wear a Federation uniform. He doesn't wear a Starfleet uniform. Yeah, true. Although he can make that little badge, whatever he wants to make it, I guess. Well, he could. But my point <laughs> is, if Bajor had called up and said, listen, Odo, you need to arrest these guys. I mean, at that point, you've got to fight, right? I mean, mm-hmm. at that point, mm-hmm. Odo does what he's supposed to do. And then maybe maybe that's when Cisco steps in and says, hey, hold on a second. Because I was a bit confused by the fact that, like, like Odo could get in trouble with the Bajoran government if it's ever found out, but he could also get in trouble with Starfleet if it's ever found out that he helped them escape. Why was Starfleet even in that fight? Why was Cisco even in that fight? This was not a security matter for the Federation. This was a security matter for, for Bajor, and Odo is the Bajoran security dude. I mean, he's not technically Bajoran, but he... Again, wears the Bajoran colors. He wears the Bajoran uniform. He wears their comm badge. I was, I was, I was confused by. First of all, in the writing of it, why is Starfleet even involved in this? And then, how are we supposed to handle Starfleet's complicity in it? Yeah. Well, I mean, interesting that we never see any other Bajoran in this, and we never see any comm chatter between Cisco and either a Starfleet admiral or somebody from the provisional government. But again, then we're building a 90-minute episode instead of a 48-minute episode. Yeah, and I know they, they don't like to do two-parters on this show, so that would be... <laughs> I know, never. Very never difficult. That. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, it's a good question. I mean, I, I still buy it the way that it is given to us in the episode, which is to say that Cisco doesn't like it, but Cisco feels obligated to go along with it. But I feel that just by having that nugget of information that Cisco doesn't like it, it's enough for the people around him who respect his decision making to at least reflect a little bit as we have with Odo and say, 
yeah, this is probably a pretty bad decision. Um, I'd rather have seen Cisco fight it, though, and at the very least have Starfleet mm -hmm. say, stay out of it. I, I agree. Even I then, agree. it would have been okay, yeah. because Starfleet is, Starfleet, Starfleet is basically, I mean, they're complicit. They're not, yeah. they're not even just turning their back on the whole thing. They're like, no, put the cuffs on that guy. You tell yeah. the guy who somebody else should be telling to put the cuffs on him to put the cuffs on him. So he really puts the cuffs on him, even though in the end he flies in the face of both Bajor and Starfleet. So, so that's good. Yeah. By the way, can I just point out that uh, the last time we saw a bunch of uh, Bajorans uh, who were prisoners from the occupation, I remember far, far away and Kira went over there to help bust them out. And then the Cardassians showed up on a uh, view screen and said, oh, this was a huge mistake. We can't believe there were still Bajoran prisoners. We're going to release all of them. <laughs> that you know about. <laughs> that was months ago. That was, was months, months ago. ago. It was a long yeah. time ago. Yeah. No, there's, that, was another, that was another sick part of the whole thing that I was thinking about, too. I was thinking about it here in this world as well. It's like we, we trade for people or things that are being held for no better reason than the fact that, you know, give somebody a bargaining chip, give some leverage, mm -hmm. which, you know, is a horrible thing to think about, you know, both here in the real world and in the pretend Cardassian world. But yeah, I feel certain there are plenty of people who are like, wow, I guess this war is never going to end. Is it Cardassian guard? And the Cardassian guard's like, no, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> to let you get back to your show believe me we do not like these messages any more than you but gumbification sufferers are suffering well they might be it sort of depends please call the number at the bottom of your screen profit and loss and it's sort of like last week with playing god i don't think we really need to address the title that much uh, no, you, you got profit. Yeah, and and you got loss. Yeah, there you I go. Think that pretty much sums it up. Yeah, I think rule of acquisition number three thousand seven hundred forty-two. I believe is sometimes there is profit, sometimes there's loss, and occasionally you get one episode that covers both. Let's move on. Uh, time now to talk about the uh, messages, the morals, the ideas, the ideals. You know, all the great stuff that's rolled up into this episode of Deep Space Nine. Profit and loss, John. Uh, does this episode hold up as far as you're concerned? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think it is mostly a very good episode because of character, because of intrigue, because of all the homage built in, kind of just baked into the script and, and the style that they're going after. I will say, you know, I, I think uh, Raquel and Hogue are just kind of dull. And I don't mean that specifically for the actors. Right. I mean that just I'm not really I'm not interested in them the way that I'm interested in Natima. But obviously, Natima is the guest star. That is the more important role here. But I also want to feel something for Raquel and Hogue. I want to feel something about the importance of their mission. Um, Honestly, she could have as easily been bringing secret plans. Sure. And that might have yeah. even been better because yeah. you're right. They are kind of, they're not a failing exactly, but they're, they're, they, they don't, they don't really need to be there for anything that happens in this episode. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it's absolutely true. But again, in the, in the 90 minute version, we might've gotten a little more out of them and, and, and cared a little more deeply about their survival. Yeah. Um, and you know, as a production, yeah, there's phaser fire, but there's a lot of talk in this episode, but they carry it off because the dialogue is mostly very well written. Mm -hmm. uh, all the performances are great. Um, there's a romance here with a character who we shouldn't care if he has his heart broken. And they carry that off, too. And I think carry that off very well. Um now, it's weird because uh, th this episode, as I said originally, it, it was written very deeply as an homage to Casablanca. It got a little too close 
So they had to kind of step that back. There were there were threats of lawsuits, and, you know, copyright or trademark violation. Whatever. Seriously? Uh, yeah, yeah. So so they had to tone that down a little bit. Ah, that's so that. Yeah. Boo. Yeah. Casablanca. Casablanca. You don't. You don't. Nobody's going to think. Wow, this is really original. They're going to think. Oh, look, they're doing Casablanca. Yeah. Yeah. But but here's the thing, though. Here's the thing. The whole thing is Casablanca. We've talked about how DS9 is Casablanca. So it, it, doing Casablanca inside Casablanca, it feels natural. It feels like a normal fit, even if you don't have to do that, because you already have that dynamic of everybody coming in and out of this station. Um, let's go back to Garrick for a second. I'm not totally sold on his arc in this episode. I know that there are things to come about Garrick. I know that there's more exploration there with the character, but I'm not sold on the arc here entirely because it felt like we needed to make him a good guy because he's likable. And and that's the sort of where the episode had to land. Oh, well, we like Garrick, so we better just have a moment of redemption for him at the end. Um, and, and it's a similar thing with Quark. We, we've had so many problematic scenes with Quark in the past. Where he's murderous and he treats women horribly and this and that. But but we're just going to have these moments where we sort of redeem him in this episode because we feel like we need to like Quark. But even then, even with the stuff with Quark, even with the stuff with Garrick, they carry all of that off. So this episode takes any problem that it might have encountered and still handles it very well, still is performed, written, uh, I, I would even say edited and scored. Everything just sort of comes together very nicely with this episode. And um, as an homage without being a direct copy, they nail the style as well. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I think it does hold up quite well. I, I think I know where you're going to land on this too, Ken, but uh, why, why don't you tell all of us within uh, the sound of your voice? <laughs> Um, when you know what it's doing, I think it's great. I really like it. I mean, we know when it's playing with the style of a 40s movie, it's fantastic. Um, in an original TV show or a movie, you know, one that was trying to be a drama or a thing on its own, um, the team has turned from, you know, tough as nails, freedom fighter to worry and love over Quark would drive me insane. But, you know, here where DS9 is doing a riff on Casablanca or, you know, stories of that ilk, it's it's fine. It's exactly what she has to do. It's exactly what, you know, has to happen in this episode. I will say I like seeing Quark and love. It would have been easy to do that with Bashir, you know, or it would have been easy to do that with would have been easy to do it with O'Brien because he has a wife and he has a kid, but it could be something from his past. My point is it would have been easy to do that with a relatively handsome, you know, human looking character. Here we have a short guy with the, the gigantic ears and the scraggly teeth and he's in love. And I felt that he was in love. Yeah. I like seeing more to Quark than the standard issue Ferengi. Um, I wish we could decide what he's going to be ultimately, but you know, I, I couldn't help thinking as well about Pell. And the feelings that he felt there, uh, though he fought, you know, hard not to, you know, not to show those. He's also still kind of funny. I mean, when he's in love, he's not a good guy just because he's in love. He's just uh, Quark in love, right? When he's making the deal with Odo and he's like, I will tell you every lying scheme, dirty trick that my brother Ram is involved with because he's still, <laughs> he's still got a business to run. He's still going to be Ferengi. He's still going to be the Ferengi he is. He's just got a heart. Yes. Garrick is honestly the most troubling part of the episode for me. And we talked about this a little bit in the last segment. Disappointing might be a better word. I'm not off the character. Um, His willingness, though, uh, to sell out as quickly as he did and the back and forth that he pulled in this episode. We're used to him being ambiguous. We're used to not knowing whether he's a good guy or bad guy, whether he's someone we can trust. But, you know, for the purposes of this episode, it felt like he was just flip flopping. Um, I'm really hoping this is just one bad turn for this character. I don't want this to be who Garrick is from now on. Kind of like I want them to land on something for Quark. If he's going to be a good guy, I want him to be a good guy. If he's going to be a bad guy, I want him to be a bad guy. I don't like the constant, he is what we need him to be this week, where Quark is concerned. Mm -hmm. I really liked not knowing what Garrick's thing was. And, And this episode, I sort of feel like, oh, 
he's a self-serving opportunist. Okay. That's that's who he is now. And I really hope it doesn't stay that way, or I really hope that's not what he ends up being. And while I know there's a lot more to come from Garrick, I don't honestly know what that is. And I'm hoping we get back to the, I'm not sure how I feel about this guy. Because I am sure how I feel about Quark. One week I like him, one week I hate him, because they keep writing him differently from week to week to week. <laughs> the whole time so far, we haven't known how to feel about Garrick. And yeah. and then so for it to be oh well no he's a he's a he's a you know dirty dealing villain, which I sort of felt like is what he was this week. Um, and that was the only thing that was mildly troubling. But even that I can I can I can throw away because once I know what they're doing uh, with the with the forties homage, um, I think they do it really well. It's a lot to lay on about Garrick, considering that we've only had him in about three episodes up until now. Yeah. And and we haven't had a lot of detail about him. It's just always the, is he or isn't he? Where, where do his loyalties lie? And then suddenly here we are, you know, what, two-thirds of the way through season two. And there's just a lot about his his background, uh, who, who he is, what, what he wants, what his ties are. He's still talking to the Cardassians. He will wield a weapon if he needs to. You know, that that's a lot to kind of take in. Instead of just writing this sort of curious, ambiguous thing with him. So, and like I said, I know that there's more to come about him and with him. Um, but it, it was strange to me to get that. Mm-hmm. And, um, and again, just sort of feel like, well, we like Garrick. So we, we can't make him terrible. <laughs> you know? Right. So, um, what about messages, morals, that kind of thing? Well, I, I kind of go back to my notes in the last segment, which was that I, I wasn't interested in landing on a message here because, A, it was partly a style experiment to do this Casablanca within Casablanca. And the other part was it was just interesting to me to have all this character stuff with where people's motivations either stay or where they change. That opening conversation is about Garrick and uh, and Bashir debating loyalty to the state or loyalty to family. And it seems like the further we get into it, our, our, is our loyalty to principle or is it to family or lover? Is it to the state? Or the principle? Is it to whatever? And the answers all seem to be yes. You know, they, everybody has a different answer to that question. And what we hope to see is that by the end of the episode, with the exception of offing the one truly bad guy here, which is Toran, mm-hmm. everybody actually kind of lands in a good place, regardless of where their motivations are. Now, we're not going to see the Cardassian army show up next week and say, hey, we're still looking for those people, <laughs> you know, so we, we can kind of call this one ended. We can kind of call this one closed out, but everybody kind of landed where they needed to be, even if the inspiration for where they landed were different places. We, we actually spell that out at the end of the episode, you know, Quark saying he does or he did what he did because of his love for Natima. Garrick says he did what he did because of his love for Cardassia, well, it all worked out, regardless. So it was an interesting way to explore those loyalties. But are we supposed to get a hard message from that? Nah. Am I missing anything there? No, I'm with you. I mean, I don't think there is a message, honestly, and that's fine. I mean, it's 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 Bogey and Bergman, right? I mean, there's there's just uh, uh, gumbification. Uh, to the characters, but not enough to make me um, to make me hate it. Um, there is stuff to think about, but no, I don't think there's a, I don't think there's a message, and that's that's groovy because because they weren't they didn't leave you standing there going wow you know it was just like oh that was a, that was a good story with some stuff to think about and just just a whole lot of fun so yay. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Executive producer Rod Roddenberry. You can find the Roddenberry Podcast Network at podcast.roddenberry.com. There you will find other great shows from the network, Mission Log Live, Women at Warp, Priority One, and The Trek Files. 
If you'd like to support Mission Log directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash mission log. For more exciting Star Trek podcasts, check out Trek FM at trek.fm. And for the latest in Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit trekmovie.com. On the next episode of Mission Log, Blood Oath. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com, and from the album Messages, by Key Theory, free to download at kitheory.com. At the Alpha Quadrant Combification Prevention Society, we are staggered by your support. Or not. Your donations will help. Or, we may just blow the money on hats. transmission. Podcast.roddenberry.com The Roddenberry Podcast Network.